0: This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Hi, I'm Roisin Ingle and you are very welcome to Back to Yours, a podcast where I knock on the doors of some big names to tell the story of their lives through the houses they've lived in. In this episode, I went to the very cool city centre apartment of Rory O'Neill, the talented man behind the drag queen persona Panty Bliss. We talked about his evolution as a performer and his relationship with the country. He once couldn't stand, but now calls home. Here it is. We go back to yours with Rory O'Neill. I, no, I just love those windows. and the yeah, of in yeah. the ass. For cleaning? It's, like it's the same glass
1: since they were built in 1980. It's not even shatterproof. Like, if you hit that, it would just, okay. you'd go through it. Yeah. It's not double glazed. When the wind yeah. is strong, water comes in. But right. it's really warm uh, it anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Isn't
0: it? it doesn't look like an Irish apartment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's got a different feel altogether. This it. is my
1: pride and joy, even though it's a fucking it's myth, you've got walk-in wardrobe walk That
0: is, now, Rory, that's very decadent.
1: Shane, the bar manager of Panty Bar, right. he, he's a doer and he loves all this kind of stuff, construction and all that. Um, it's proper it's kind of his hobby almost. So he did the apartment, yeah. project, and he built this with his own hands. What was that before? This is was just, just IKEA, you know,
0: mirrored cheap, mirrored tiles. I'm, I'm just observing the mid-century modern vibe that you well, have. There's
1: a lot on. of Niall Sweeney, Niall Sweeney, Nile alternative Sweeney, Zara and the poster there. An ex-boyfriend <laughs> and an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> so lots yeah. of work. A lovely balcony outside
0: as well. Mm. Gorgeous. Uh, and I'm liking this. Is this a, a, what kind what material is the floor? So,
1: my older brother had this floor in an apartment about 35 years ago. It's like industrial uh, Pirelli rubber floors. I mean, other company made it nowadays, but I think it was Pirelli floor. Like you see in train stations or I hospitals. think you're ahead
0: of your time because I think people do this now, don't they? With this kind of flooring in
1: well, their homes. Well, I mean, I think you can get them in any colour too. Mm. Like, it's amazing. And it's kind of warm in the winter.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, it's all soft under your feet. A little, you know, it's mm. rubber. And it's cool in the summer. And okay. you can spill anything on it. You can drop a wine glass and it doesn't break. Right. Now, yeah, you so. got
0: married. You live here with your husband.
1: I do. And it's, you know, relatively small. Uh, okay. But so thank you. We get on very well. <laughs> uh, um, yes, we do live here together. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It hasn't been an issue at all, but it is small for that.
0: Yeah, but only two of you, it's actually, and a dog. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about the dog.
1: And Penny is 12. She looks good for 12, doesn't she? Yeah, she looks
0: very good.
1: Um, She, you they say that thing about um, dogs becoming like their owners, their owners becoming like the dogs. Penny has always been weird in a way that suits me. Well, she was a rescue. And she had a lot of issues for the first few years and she still has the traces of those issues. Mm-hmm. Like she's not being very super friendly to you guys because she's just not interested in people. And yeah. <laughs> um, she doesn't like, sh- no cuddling.
0: Okay, not at all. She-,
1: she wants to be touching you by sitting beside you or a leg on you That's or something. True. But she doesn't like to be anyway way enclosed. Yeah. Uh, uh, she used to, for the first four years I had her, if you bent over her and everybody bends over a small dog, she would immediately pee like a submissive thing. So that, yeah, it's another good reason to have rubber floors.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much for letting us come back to yours, Rory.
1: Perfectly all right. It's been ages since I brought a woman home.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can we start in Ballinrobe? Yes. Where you grew up. Mayo, Yeah. Um, what was that home like? What was the aesthetic? What was the vibe that your parents um, created in the house?
1: Perfection. <laughs> um, ours was well, what they used to call an architect designed house, as in my dad paid a man to design it. Which back days, then, people, that Yeah, you used been... to get out of a book. There was like the standard 12 bungalows <laughs> or whatever. Um, it was architect designed. And uh, at the time I didn't get it, but now it seems very cool. Yeah. Was that
0: seen as notions at the time, probably? I d- probably. I, wish,
1: yeah. I think so. My dad is always very proud that he... You know, my dad is always one of those people, um, he's not particularly artistic himself, but he really appreciates it in other people. Also, it... Uh, you know, that, so the town, let's imagine the town is like a circle, and then imagine you take a sort of slice of pie out of it, and that slice of pie is still so countryside. Mm-hmm. So almost right at the same time, there's one little piece that felt kind of like the countryside. Yeah. And our house was on the sort of apex of that thing. So for years, we didn't have any neighbors. And the backs of some other houses faced us. But that was it. Um, so behind us, there was a big giant field, uh, a river, a little woods, mm-hmm. um, and then stretching out into the countryside. And, uh, and, uh, and our road was called, by everybody, the bog road. That's what it's known <laughs> as locally. And, and the only other people, you'd go down, I don't know, 500 meters or something. And the travellers uh, had an encampment there, and still, due to this day, there's travellers living there. And then off uh, out to the bog. Now it's changed a bit. The big field behind us now has you know an estate in it. Um, and you, know, you
0: mentioned the travellers. Did everybody coexist? Was it all very totally? Um,
1: yeah. Ban has always had a strong you know uh, traveller community, and uh, so we've always grown up with the travellers. It, it really sh- shocked me when I came to Dublin and realised that people had never even spoken to a traveller. Because, you know, they were just, they were our classmates and, you know, desk mates in school. And um, to this day, every Christmas morning, my father goes down to see um, one of the older mm-hmm. old women down there that we would all have grown up with, um, you know, with presents for the many grandkids, whatever. Um, yeah, we know, uh, we've, we just grew up with travelers. Um, and we know them as, well, as individuals, I guess. And there's good ones and bad ones and nice ones and annoying ones and all that it's stuff. Like people.
0: Exactly, that's <laughs> the
1: point. And it really shocked me. I thought that was just standard for Ireland. And it really shocked me when I first came to Dublin, like in my, you know, as a student or whatever, to realise that there were lots of my friends here. I'd never even mm. spoken
0: to a traveller. I know, it's funny. I, I couldn't get over that. We used to get, um, we lived near a convent in, in Sandyment, and they used to bring us the clothes we didn't mm. have much money. We lived in Sandy, man, but we didn't have any money. Mm. So it was a bit of a contrast. But uh, the nuns used to bring bags of secondhand clothes for us, for the family, because mm. there was eight kids. So we'd go through them all. And then the things that wouldn't f- suit or didn't, weren't of use to us a woman called Mary, a traveller woman, would come every week or every couple of weeks and we'd give her the rest. And there was yeah. this sort of symbiotic mm. relationship. And again, it was just totally normal. It was the woman who came through. There was never yeah. any feeling like, oh, this is really yeah. weird or bad. Like, we did
1: think of them as different. Mm. That is true. But in the same way that you just well, they, thought she of,
0: was different, yeah. Yeah. Like it, you but know. you didn't have any antipathy or any no, kind of feeling that you them, were better than... The, yeah, and
1: you didn't you know. have any pre-decision about it because yeah. you knew them all as people. Um, who are so culturally different, I would say. Um, but there was just part of, you know, there those other people in the town or culture. The Protestants were culturally different. Um, but, you know, they were all just part of the town too. So, yeah, really, th- that was something that um, I'd never, um, I'd never considered until I came to Dublin and realised that lots of people I know had never even met a traveller. And that was like, God, how, yeah, that was a revelation. Uh,
0: when you were in this perfect, amazing, idyllic childhood, did you kind of still have a yearning to get out, to escape, to be somewhere else? Or was it so amazing that you were like, well, this is perfect, I don't need to...
1: I mean, I think until I was, say, you know, 12 or 13, the usual, yeah, it's perfectly... Well, I was perfectly happy because I, I, d- I do think from very early, I felt a little off-kilter or something with the, with the rest of the mm. thing. For example, just stuff to do with the obvious thing, you know, such cliche, gay cliche, but, you know, I hated the football and all of that.
0: And And that was a huge part of it. Yeah,
1: but I I wasn't, um, I was never never bullied or anything like that, but just annoying, like I remember one of the teachers who was always pushing me, pushing me, pushing me to, you know, to enjoy football or hurling whatever and do it. And I was like, I just don't like it, you know. (laughs) Um, But also, I always felt a little odd about things, but I was perfectly happy Mm because it was a perfectly happy scenario until I started to become interested in more than that. And as soon as I, you know, found the face magazine I was like out of here
0: <laughs> <laughs> and where did you where's your first non-Ballinrobe? robe was it Dublin for college art college in that or
1: no um, so when um, we were in Ballon robe so there was um, nowadays they have a big you know community school like everywhere else but at the time there was a boys secondary school and a girls secondary school and the Boys, secondary school, and uh, they're all, I think, probably passed on now, so I can say it was a shithole. There was a few prefabs (laughs) um, and, you know, a couple of alcoholic uh, members of a religious order. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and you know, we were all going to be sent there. uh, Well, three boys. And we were all sent away to boarding school near my grandmother's in Betty's town, County Meath. But the middle brother was a homesick type, so he went back to Bowen I never had a homesick day in my life at boarding school, even though it was boring and dull and grim, and I hated it. I still was totally fine. <laughs> um, Why?
0: Why do you think that is?
1: I've never, I've never been homesick ever in my life. And I think it's a great disappointment to my mother. Um, you know, I would be like in in, in boarding school you know in this bed in this dormitory with hundreds of um, others and I could hear them all sobbing you know this kind of thing or crying and missing their mammy and all and i was just like what is wrong with that idiot <laughs> you
0: know like I'm just like fine <laughs>
1: um, I think people I've people do really have a
0: terrible time at boarding school people feel really oh, wrenched listen. from their homes oh
1: my god there are lots and lots of people who are in school yeah and, it, it, the, the school doesn't even exist anymore but right? well, it is there but if who are damaged school, by it it's a mixed school day school now but uh, there were, I would say, 50% of the people, it was the right decision. They were perfectly fine there. They got on okay. And the alternative was, you know, they probably worked out better for them in the end than the, the, whatever they were from. Um, but there was another 30% who probably didn't enjoy it much and didn't get much, any benefit out of it. And there was 20% who should never have been there in the first place. And their lives were miserable, uh, sad, picked on. Um... Putting a whole load of boys together is, it becomes, you know, Lord of the Flies, mm-hmm. for survival of the fittest. And the, you know, the teachers and all that, they can do their best, but they can't actually get in on the ground floor and get in among it. And yeah, it can be for, for those people who are, if you're fat or, you know, weird skin or you book tooth or whatever it is, they'll find something. And, uh, and if you're the wrong personality type, yeah, it can be cruel. And how
0: did you sort of get away and navigate that and not experience I that? I am the right personality type
1: for right. that. Um, I was, you know, the weird, slightly weird, uh, you know, queer kid or whatever. But... Because
0: I wouldn't have well, thought wouldn't that might to, make people... You, uh, yeah, I wouldn't we wouldn't have able to put our finger yeah. on
1: it. It was before the internet, so nobody <laughs> knew anything. But, uh, um, but you no, know, people knew that, sensed that. Yeah. Or whatever. Um, but I'm just... You know, I'm mouthy, I'm, you Crack.
0: Know,
1: yeah, like I got on perfectly well with the bad boys and with the nerds. I mean, I would play Dungeons and Dragons while the others were out playing football. And, but then I'd be smoking in the toilets with them, the, you know, the football bad boys later. Okay. Um, but though, funnily, I always think about it. So I hated it because you were locked into it. Basically, it was a prison <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I hated that. I, I thought that all the rules were stupid, um, all of that. But I understood also that I was perfectly fine. And um, so there was, okay. you know, wasn't any sort of issue for me. But, you know, every now and then some past people would come along and they'd visit their old teacher and he'd be teaching us at that moment. So they'd come into the classroom or something. And then either the past people or later after you'd gone, the teacher would say, you know, guys, one day you'll look back and you'll realize these are the best days of your lives. And I would think, kill me now. Because if this is as good as it gets, what is the point? Like, and, then, but, and then years later, I would sometimes be walking down the street and some friend of my dad's, I would think, like some old man would yeah. say, Rory? And I'd be like, yes. And then it slowly dawned on me, he was in my class in school or something. And I'd be like, oh my god. And i think, he's one of those people. It really was the best years of his life. You know, maybe he was the captain of the football team or something. But after you leave school, nobody cares if you were the captain of the football team. And then you, you're, you're straight and you get married and have kids early and you, have, you can't just follow your dream and f- do any old job because you need to worry about the money. And so you end up working in some shitty basement office where you're smoking on the pavement when the gay you used to go to school with goes by and it's flip-flops. And because you're two hours in traffic to suburban hell, you know. And it, it drains you.
0: I love the way you talk about how the patriarchy damages men as well, you know, and you've talked about that a lot. And that's what you just painted there. It's not a scenario (laughs) we talk about. Like we talk a lot about how women were confined and which they were and Mm -hmm. all that things happen, but how men were confined in those roles too. Because they have the same
1: sort of pressure. They push them in a different direction, but it's the same thing. Like I, I do some, you know, people often this, you know, in my line of work, the gay thing comes up all the time. And, you know, yes, briefly, there was a moment yeah. when I was about 15, if you had offered me the pill to make you straight, I would have taken it. But, you know, once I was about 17, I've never looked back. I would never want that pill. And part of it is because I recognised the freedoms that it gave me. I have been able to just piss around, do whatever seemed fun, because yeah. I didn't have to worry about, the you know, wives and childrens and a good job in the bank, because I couldn't have gotten a good job in the bank regardless, you know. And so... Mm. Um, being queer allowed you to just be more radical, and um, and I've benefited from that. Mm. It, it was my one fear about the marriage equality thing—you know—that the gays would become more <laughs> more cons- constrained, whereas I actually just wanted the you know the the um, the straights become less constrained.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, um, yeah. yeah, But then when we talk about it later, you did eventually go down the the marriage. Route. I did. So um, you went to college in Dublin. Yeah. What was your living setup then? Did you share? Were, yes. you, know, were you in a bed set? What was going on? Uh,
1: dingy, rotten, uh, basement flats in Dunleary mostly. Okay. Um, and it's funny, I've been out there a few times in the last few years for different things, whatever, and I passed by where I used to live and, you know, it's all changed. I mean, I was there in the mid to late 80s and... Dun Leary was like nobody wanted to live in Dunleary except people from Dunleary who are also proudly not from Dublin, they're from Dunleary. Um, and all those houses that used to be just divided up into basically tenement flats, you know, with mould carpets and all that, they're now like big glorious family homes with gardens again. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, the worst, the classic student set up. And was there
0: a load of you in the. Yeah,
1: um, usually, you know, five or six of us. Um, and one of the years, it was just me and this other girl who I'm still friends with. Um, but yeah, mostly it was a big gang. And then I think it was our last year, maybe it was just two of us. A so that
0: room. was a few years of the kind of dingy life. Would you go home and get all the nice stuff uh, cooked? Well, you know,
1: home to me was um, Ballonroa County Mayo. So just getting home from Dun um as a dirt poor student. <laughs> the trip to Ballonroa was a, a, a real palaver. Um you, know, you have to get to Houston, then you have to get the train, then you have to arrange for somebody to pick you up mm-hmm. from Clare Morris and drive you, you know, to, to Ballon Road. So um, I wasn't popping home all the time. And again, as I said, I was never really homesick. Um, mm-hmm. So I went home on the major holidays, you know, <laughs> Christmas, Easter, you know, a uh, bit of summer, or whatever. Um, so, and also my mother, um, she's amazing and she'll do anything more, but she, she didn't bring us up to be the kind who, to just turn up with a bag of washing. Right. And she would, if I did, she would have done it. Yeah. But that wasn't the expectation in our house. Um, you looked after yourself once you were old enough. Um, and yeah, so you know, I didn't.
0: And then when you finished college, did you then feel like you wanted to get out or did you stay around here? No, when I uh,
1: finished college, you know, I wanted to get out. It was nineteen. 19- Eighty nine. was no work, no excitement. Uh, there was no no. You know, and at that age, you know, the things that were important to me were like going out clubbing. and All there, no such thing. You had to go to a wine bar on Leeson Street. Um, really, just grimness. And uh, and you know, all the you know all the people who were considered cool had like long hair and paisley shirts. You know what I mean? I was just like, oh god. <laughs> so so I was out of here. And at the time, you know. I thought I was never going to live here again. I wanted to go to the only the biggest cities in the world, and the you know, you know I was all that, yeah. um, rejecting everything. But well, also I felt entirely rejected by Ireland anyway, so I didn't feel I owed it anything. Um, you know, like homosexuality was still a crime all through my college years. You know, mm. um, so I mean, when you say that to people now, a friend of mine recently was watching The Queen of Ireland documentary oh, yeah, with his daughter, who's 18. And in the middle of it, she turns around and says to him, homosexuality was uh, illegal in your lifetime? And I'm like, <laughs> I yeah, I was 26 or something before they changed that. So, um, yeah, I was out of here. Um, and and I'm I with that to sense
0: of "See, Ireland would oh, want to be yeah. a kind I of... I honestly thought I, I would care. never
1: live here again. Um,
0: and by that stage, had you started doing drag? Yes. Okay.
1: My... So, I went to our college in Dunleary, which um, nowadays is this big, um, what do you call it, a uh, technical college? What do yeah. you call it?
0: Uh, uh, whatever the, it is. You know I, what I'm I talking do. about. <laughs> I should know as well, but I'll get your drift.
1: Oh, yes. my Yes, Institute of Technology. Yes. Whereas when I was going there, it was a. It was called the Dunleary School of Art, and it had 200 students. Half of those were in the foundation year, which doesn't even exist anymore. And so each year after that, had like 20 students in it or something. Um, and it was kind of the little rebel college. Um, you know, it was almost meant to be a reaction to NCAD or something. And so at the time, it was so tiny, everybody knew everybody, mm-hmm. um, that you could get away with doing things that you mightn't have in a bigger place. And, uh, um, and so I was studying design and in 80% of my classmates would have gone on to become graphic designers. Uh, and I actually hated it. <laughs> I loved college, but I hated design, graphic design. Um, before computers, you had to literally cut out letters with an X-Acto blade. We had a class <laughs> that taught us how to use cowgum to stick letters. You know, the correct cowgum gum technique. Um, so I did foundation, and then I did the, the three years of that, and... And by the end of that third year, and I was spending the summer in London with my gay brother, um, having a fabulous time, I thought I would rather you know, eat razor blades than become a graphic designer. Um, but I'd done three years. I had one year left to go. My parents would like to see the piece of paper, uh, all that stuff. And I, didn't, and I liked college, yeah. and you know, the fun aspects of it. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll do the final year. And in your final year, you have to do essentially one big project that you choose yourself. You do some minor stuff as well. But, um, and I decided I would design a drag show. Um, and I don't think I could have gotten away with that in another bigger college or whatever. But in De I just had to sort of persuade them that I would do, you know, graphic elements, posters and uh, costumes and set design and all that stuff. And they let me do it. Fair play to them. And, but I'd never done a drag show. But after spending a year designing it, it seems stupid not to do it. So I did it for the external assessors okay. and for the kids and you know, the other students. Um, and that was the beginning was of a slippery it. slope, yeah.
0: Where was the best place you lived? Or where did you find the best home or the best community, the best set of friends when you went to work?
1: Probably Tokyo. Um, I went, I left, you know, after college, I think I worked here for like a year to get some money together. I worked in the Elephant and Castle when it was the only thing in Temple Bar. It and the Badass Cafe was yeah. it. There was nothing else there. Um, and then I went to uh, Japan, and it was all part of the whole life's big adventure business. Myself and a girlfriend of mine, Helen, we went to t- Japan by train. We did the Trans-Siberian. Uh, you know, the USSR was collapsing around us. Uh, you know, All that stuff. Tiananmen Square just happened. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but anyway, we got to Tokyo, which was having its boom. You could, and you could get a job um, and I, I was there for four years and I you know obviously I, I met friends and we made a, sort of a group and, and over the four years uh, people all gravitated to there was one small apartment building which was owned by this old uh, lady and, um, and by the end all of my best friends were basically living in this one small apartment building. And it was like, you know, friends, you know, the tea or something. Like, it was the perfect living scenario. We all had our own apartments. Yeah. Small, you know, Japanese, tiny, one-room But all your friends were in the building and you could run across, you know, and get whatever. Um, if you came home and something had happened in your day, you could just knock in and tell somebody. It, it felt like the perfect living arrangement. And also, of course, that's where I, you know, started doing drag seriously. And um, so... Every young person has that their 20s experience that they feel made them who they are today <laughs> and all that stuff. And mine was in Tokyo, and um, I loved my little apartment. I mean, I had a few apartments when I was there, but the, the one that I think of that I had longest and at the end, it was, you know, it was about the size of this living room, the whole apartment. Uh, you know, it, it had just the rollout mat to turn your living room into your bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it had the little funny Japanese bath, which is like a, tall, big box that you can sort of squat inside. And it's like a washing machine for a person. Um, All that stuff. And I loved it. And did you think you were
0: going to stay there?
1: At one point, I did, yeah. And then just things um, all coalesced at the same time to make me leave. Some of my best friends were leaving for their own reasons. One had met an American, Helen. Uh, She had met an American guy. And she was going to move back to America with him. My drag partner in crime um, was also—he was going—he was from Atlanta, Georgia, and he was going back to take up a job in NYU, Um, yeah, and uh, um, you know, so those kind of things. And I would had a boyfriend that that had broken up, and um, and I I uh, got—you know—I was ill, Um, so just all these things came together. It seemed like the universe is telling me my my time there was up, Um, and it probably was. I think. and I came back to Ireland just basically to visit. I was going to just you know, visit and rest up for a while and then move on. And I, I think I vaguely thought I was going to Paris for some reason. <laughs> I spoke French and had worked as a, you know, as a teenager in France every summer. And, uh, and then I came home and it was the mid-90s, 95. And there was a spot, you know, yeah. homosexuality having decriminalized. Oh, yeah. uh, you could buy a beer after, you know, after pub time.
0: Yeah. And
1: there was nightclubs. The kitchen had just opened and all of that. Um, it just felt like actually there was something changing. The Lewis tracks were being laid in parts of town. Yeah, like even physically the city mm. was changing. And it just seemed, I don't know if I ever made an actual decision to stay. But staying just happened because there was things... And it was also, I, I, I was finally able to make a living doing something that I was at the time really enjoying, which is running around, making a fool of myself and getting drunk.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so, yeah, so I ended up staying. And uh, now I, uh, yeah, I, I love Dublin now.
0: Tell me about Panty Bar as a home, because you're there a lot. Yes. I mean, how often are you? I mean, is it a... Well, nowadays, I'm actually not there as okay. often as
1: I used to be. In the, um, we opened six months before the crash. So we opened like uh, November, two thousand and seven, and six months later the crash happened, and we lost about half of our customers in the space of a year. Everybody under thirty-five mm-hmm. just left. Everybody else started being really careful with their money um, and not going out so much. We also had from the beginning this um, the gays had this psychological barrier known as the River Livi, <laughs> and the gays you know were very comfortable with this tiny little triangle. Um, George's Street, Parliament Street, yeah. which is literally, you know, a hundred meters from Panty Bar, um, That little sort of area. And it was, it was very difficult to get them to break out of mm-hmm. that. Um, so all those things came together. So the first, I would say, five or six years were incredibly difficult. And we really can, you know, a hair's breadth of closing a few times. I, the sheriff was at the door one day. Um, because we owed him you know, tax money and all that we just didn't have and he was about to start taking away equipment in lieu. Um, so we could easily have not made it. But then in January 2013, uh, now January, our trade, it's the worst yeah. month. And I remember looking at the at the end of January 2013, looking at it and thinking, oh, that's not as bad as I was expecting. And from that, that's where the change happened. And it slowly started to get better. Now, so up until then, I was there all the fucking time. (laughs) 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 Myself and Shane, the the manager, and uh, uh, yeah, lived there. Um, And then it slowly got easier. It took a long time because we had built up a lot of debts in that time. Mm. So we were, first of all, you had to pay off all those debts. And then you know, get it into some sort of where it is now. It's re-embedded. It's a local bar, you know, to the gays. What were
0: you trying to create with Panty Bar that wasn't there already? Uh, for people who don't really know that scene or don't know yeah. what was there, what what was missing um, apart from the north side angle? But uh, what else was missing?
1: Um, I think there's, well, there's two things that, that one is um, the personal touch, because originally um, the sort of gay bars in Dublin uh, almost none of them started as a gay bar. They organically became one, and mm. often the people who owned them around them were never entirely on board with what happened to their bar. <laughs> and so that was sometimes there. Um, they didn't advertise themselves as a gay bar and all that sort of stuff. Um, now, the George is slightly different um, because it was you know, b- bought by a gay guy and then and, on. And, but it had become; it was becoming this bigger sort of corporate entity in mm. a way, So what the idea for Panty Bar was, well, a few things. One was it would be unashamedly gay in every way. So it has big plate glass windows. There's no sense of, you know, frosted glass or anything that all the gay bars used to have. And you can look right in and see who's there. It would be an old school community bar in a modern way. So we have always allowed other you know, events and community-based things even if technically they might be in competition with us like, you know, whatever, some big gay party going on in the night, you know, time to are open. we always allow people to put up their posters and their flyers and all that stuff um, because we wanted to be that where you can go there and get all the information about whatever's going on and um, we wanted to have that feel so it was always like the pub quizzes on a Tuesday night for the, you know, the, the gay running club or the lesbian football team or the, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Um, I mean, that was was basically it. A modern version of an old-school community bar and that it would be just super gay. Mm. (laughs) Um, And and I think it is that.
0: And is it still, even though you're not there as much, is it still a home from home? Do you feel like completely, when you walk in those doors, is this like, just, Yeah, The only thing that's different
1: now, that's dramatically different now in a way, is I used to know every single staff member so well. Mm-hmm. I knew their mothers, mm-hmm. and I knew you know they're, they're all about their village in Brazil. <laughs> I, you know, I knew their birthdays and their love lives and all that stuff. Um, and now I walk in, I'm half staff. I don't actually know their name because um, first of all, there's a lot more of them. And uh, and because I don't spend that kind of time there anymore. And so even though, for example, I'm in on Saturday nights, um, I only see who's working at that corner that I'm in, yeah, or whatever, yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, so that is a big change for me, and I, in part, he misses that. But in, but in a way, that's also why I started Panty Bar, because I was thinking, what does an aging drag queen do? And I wanted something, you know, yeah. that would tick along. Of course, it didn't tick along for years, and it was a really was really hard. But it is now where I always wanted it to be from mm. the beginning. Where it kind of ticks along, and it probably runs better when I'm not there to interfere. Um, <laughs> Shane has, been very the manager. Honest, well, yeah, Shane has been the manager for all 12 years and he's amazing and I trust him with my life so I can wander off and do my other stuff, the tour with the shows or go off and do the other things I do and not worry about it. Mm. And very few people with businesses can say that.
0: Escape the ordinary with Green and Blacks, sponsor of Back to Yours. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Discover your favorite flavour from the range, which includes 70% cocoa, roasted almond, salted caramel, sea salt and mint. What about Dublin now? Because you spoke about how Ireland felt, you know, when yeah. when you were younger. How do you feel about Dublin now and about um, this podcast is all about homes and houses and all that kind of thing, but it's very difficult now yes. for people to get homes and people are being pushed out. Yeah. Well,
1: personally, I actually feel lucky because I was never able to afford to buy anything in the times when I was meant to be at, yeah. doing that. And, and and I thought, you know, when the crash happened, I thought I would missed my chance because, you know, right after the crash, because things were getting so expensive mm. and way beyond my means. And I was, you know a drag queen running around, you know, always living, you know, from you know month to month and all that sort of stuff, doing fine. I mean, I never, I was always able to pay the rent and all, but not anywhere near. And, I, and a bank manager would have laughed me out of the room. Um, and so then by pure luck, you know, my trajectory and the economic trajectory all ended up happening that I then was able to buy this apartment they were, were sitting in. And I feel really lucky now, um, and it was a good job that I wasn't able to afford this when, when you know, other people um, could. Uh, I do think it's so. I felt for a long time that I was in the position that I think a lot of people really are in now. And now I had a stroke of kind of luck or a stupid, you know, happy accident. Yeah. Um. But I, but I know exactly the feeling of thinking I'm never going to be able to do that. Um. And, it's it's very depressing, especially. Uh, People say that's an Irish thing, but I'm not even so sure that it's just an Irish. I think, doesn't everybody want security? And maybe in Germany, you can have security by renting. Um, but regardless, Germans want security too. Everybody wants security. And to think that that's totally out of your reach is really depressing. Um, and, you know, I do think older people need to just feck off sometimes and really think about how things have changed uh, because uh, older people tend to be quite dismissive sometimes I think of mm. young people complaining about these things but uh, it is absolutely true that people of a different generations expected to be able to buy a house as a nurse yeah. uh, as a school teacher and that simply isn't an option anymore and I don't think older people appreciate uh, what that ability did for them and their sense of home and community and all of that uh, because it's it's, in a way, I think of it a bit like, I just think straight people don't appreciate how important their sexuality is to them, mm-hmm. because it's just, yeah. it's just always been yeah. fine, yeah. That, they haven't thought, think about it. Um, and I think that's the same. There are older people who think, why are they all complaining? Why don't they just save a bit harder? Um, they don't understand how lucky they were in that respect, um, and, and how they neither do they understand the sort of, well, the depressing weight of the thought that you will never mm have security in your living arrangements, um, it, it's depressing.
0: And do you hear that among customers, say? Do you hear the stories? All, all of younger
1: people. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And, and I sort of feel like I'm in the nexus of it here because uh, you can look across there and that's the Moxie Hotel. And between here and Panty Bar, one, two, three, four. Uh, just on the walk to Panty Bar, there are four hotel developments. Um, mm-hmm. And then around, you know, the markets area and that where we are, there's a few more. Um, there are hotels everywhere, um, which is you know, fine in the sense that Dublin needs hotel rooms. <laughs> but it also needs houses and uh, yeah. yeah. And it, it, I did have some sympathy uh, for politicians at one point about it. Because um, every economist or you know, person you talk to, building expert you talk to, they all have a different answer. So I don't think the answer is simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've had ten years to work it out, um, and you know they've been able to work out student housing yeah. and hotel building. So
0: work out the other work much. it
1: fucking out. I just think uh, they've run out of excuses now. Um, yeah.
0: What about marriage? Because you said earlier that you thought, yeah. let them, let the, you know, we don't want maybe gay people to become these married, yeah. settled thing, but you've changed your mind because you recently well, got married, I which mit- was lovely, by the way, to see. No. It was so gorgeous in the photo. You tweeted the photo, and everyone was like, oh, it was in the Irish Times. We were all like, oh, look, Roy's well, we always got married. Well, I kept it very quiet. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you could have done a whole VA, VIP thing, couldn't you?
1: Probably, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I prefer to keep that stuff quiet, and um, my fella is super, um, you know, shy and uh, quiet. I mean, he hates anybody even looking at him. Um, so, for all of those reasons, um, yeah, it's funny because I used to laugh at how associated I became with marriage equality because I always thought I'm never getting married. <laughs> yeah. I'm a radical But clear. you couldn't say that. Yeah. something you had well, to keep I did quiet, say quiet about. used yeah. I said that to me, it was just about it was an equality issue. Yeah. And the thing is. I used to think, you know, that getting married was boring and trite and all that stuff. But I also understood that most queer people are just as boring and trite as everybody else. And most of them, that is what they want. And if they want it, who am I to say they can't? Yeah. So for me, it was just an equality issue. But I, you know, sometimes have a little yearning for the excitement of the time when homosexuality was underground and illegal (laughs) and all that, because it just was exciting and it also, it meant that the community was much more radical Mm. because in order to get to the point where you went looking like, you know Jessica Fletcher for other gay people because it was a hard job to find them and then started going to these technically illegal gatherings and that um, you had to already have gotten to the point where you were radicalised and you were basically saying, fuck all of that, everything I've ever been taught, everything any Christian yes. brother or you know ever taught me is just bullshit. Because you had to get to that point before you had the courage to go and find them. Mm-hmm. The other queer isn't that. And so they were by nature a radical group. They were uh cut off from all the stuff. You couldn't get a decent job in the bank, you were never going to be able to get the Toyota and a nurse and move to the mm-hmm. suburbs with a chocolate labrador and a picket fence. That was all not available to you, so feck it. And so they were, like, the possibilities were there to find other ways of being happy. And if that involved living in a lesbian commune on an island and making sheep, you know, go for it. Um, and so I liked that aspect of it. And my fear was, and is sometimes, that the more um, main, you know, acceptable and mainstreamed we are, then we become less radical and become more boring. Yeah. <laughs> And so,
0: so has that um, happened to you, Rory? Well, you see now, here's where I would defend myself and say that
1: I'm not being used by the system. I'm using the system. Okay. Uh, okay. So um, my fella, um, he's Brazilian, and uh, he, you know, we were really in thing where it got to the point where he was now, in order to be able to stay uh, and, and be together, he was go- going to have to start like doing some sort of you know, master's degree course in something that he didn't really necessarily yeah. want to do, but it was the only one that he could afford because it was cheaper than something else. And, and also he kind of felt that his life was sort of in limbo. He wanted to now, he'd learned the, what he would learned the English, he'd come here to learn all that yeah. stuff. And he wanted to go and live his life and start getting real jobs and the 20 hours a week thing. And as a student, um, all that stuff was killing him. And we were actually like, looking at these courses You know that he didn't particularly necessarily want to study, but it was just in order for him to stay. And you know, it's not like I was going to pick up and move to Brazil. I mean, you know, I have a lot of things here, and uh, and it just like it. The obvious solution is staring us in the face um, to get married. So I slightly resented that at first, um, in that it somehow took the kind of romance out of it or something. Because you know, it's not how you think about getting married. I felt forced into it. But then I started talking to people you know, you know, over the time, and basically everybody was saying to me, but everybody feels forced into marriage. You know, you know not, that's not just me, you no, know, whatever. For Straight. all different reasons. Yes, babies yeah. and all yeah, sorts yeah. of houses. And
0: and what and your in-laws are going yes, on about. all, all that pressure. Stuff.
1: So that made me feel better. Yeah. Um, everybody gets bumped into marriage, or most people <laughs> get bumped into marriage at one point. Um, so that's what happened to us.
0: So before I leave your lovely home, I wanted to ask you about your health because you've spoken about your illness very yeah. openly enough, and often. I think you've helped a lot of people in that way. So where are you with that now? How are you doing? How's everything?
1: I am fit as a fiddle. Uh, you know, I have been going to St. James's since I was diagnosed with HIV in, well, 95 or six or something. So how many years? A long time ago. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, obviously the, the incredible change that's happened in that time you know, when I first started going the clinic, every single patient at that clinic died. Every single one,
0: yeah.
1: no, no exceptions, to a situation now where nobody dies. There's absolutely no need for anyone to be dying. And, uh, and the consultant has been the same consultant all that time, Fiona hey. Mulcahy. She's an amazing woman. And she was Ireland's youngest ever consultant because when she got the job um, in 1980-whatever, mm. nobody wanted that job no all your patients were going to die and all your patients were undesirables um,
0: so she uh, was happened if she'd been that a woman and that age she'd never have got a, a job except yeah for yeah else exactly she it. wasn't yeah. going to be the heart consultant yeah, ever. yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and she is an amazing woman and she's been the consultant at Ireland's largest uh, clinic uh, ever since but she is now approaching retirement um not that she's going to retire i mean her retirement plans are busier than my whole life um <laughs> But she's approaching retirement uh, as a consultant, James, and uh, I think maybe she feels a bit freer to say stuff. <laughs> and she said to me recently something that I have suspected for quite a long time, that the life expectancy for someone who's HIV positive and on treatment is probably better than you bastards. Because um, I take my one pill a day and get on with it. Yeah. Uh, and I never think about it. And... We have to be monitored. There can be some you know, complications of being on any mm. you know, medication for that long. For years yes. um, but in order to get our medication, we have to go to the clinic once every six months, so twice a year, which alone is an incredible change. Um, so twice a year, I, have to, I go to the clinic, and they run Check all the, the tests okay. because they won't give me the, you know, so until they're sure it's So you're constantly
0: on the ball with your exactly. health and weather. <laughs> okay. And if
1: anything even minors, they'll, they'll see it. And they'll be on it. So um, so she suspects, she, you know, they haven't done any studies yet. Um, and I suspect she's right. I suspect probably hmm. I'm going to live longer
0: than you bitches. Okay, thanks very much. Um, what do you think of Ireland now? Because we've had same-sex marriage and we've had repeal, which is amazing. Yeah. And it all kind of seemed to happen really quickly. And, it's just an incredible atmosphere. And even people coming from America here. I mean, if you think of Margaret Atwood was here the other day, she's mm-hmm. talking about Ireland as point of light. Manda Parman was saying the same thing. It's giving, Ireland actually giving people hope, which is so fascinating yeah. compared to where we were. Well, it's also something
1: that I feel really keenly because uh, I you know, get to travel around a lot, uh, sometimes just with my own show whatever. And also I'll do a lot with the Department of Foreign Affairs. And I get to go to places where it's incredibly hard mm. and difficult and sometimes dangerous. the uh, LGBTI and so I mean one good example I always think about is I was in Sarajevo and I'm doing the little show and in the theatre they you know they have big posters you think windows outside but they wouldn't use our poster because it had a picture of my of my face on it and they didn't want to people to see that it was a drag queen so they Made up just text posters. Okay. Um, they had to hire extra security. They had to liaise with the local, uh, you know, police, whatever. It um, you know, was all these fears around it, um, and those fears are founded. Now I, I felt totally fine and safe, and nothing mm. happened, of course. Uh, but you know, there's no gay bar in Sarajevo, but there's a kind of a misfit bar, very like the kind of bars that I would have first gone to mm. in Dublin, like Bartley Duns or something. Yeah which had like the rockers in one corner, a few punks over there, queers there, you know, cycle careers for some reason. (laughs) And and, um, and so it has one of those bars. And in the month before I went there, it had been attacked three times by neo-Nazis. And the last time the barman was dragged out into the street and the Mm. crap beaten out of him. Um, And after the show, uh, we did like a little meet and greet. And this 17-year-old lesbian is talking to me. And she's thanking me uh, for coming, whatever. And, and in the show, you know, I'm telling Ireland's story, mm. in a way. Um, and I'm like, no, thank you for coming, because that was a bigger deal for her to come yeah. than it was for me. And here's the thing. I remember being 17. And Ireland didn't look hugely different. Um, I won't say that it, it was never neo-Nazis gangs running around, but you know, it, it felt very mm. repressive as a queer person. And at 17, I thought nothing would ever change. Because how could anything change? Mm. And you know, that's how she feels, and it's depressing. Oh, yeah. But then I'm the big giant shiny drag queen is there and can tell her iron story. And you know, and it
0: That things it, do change. Yes,
1: it shows you that incredible social change yeah. is possible. Yeah. Dramatic change is possible, and that young people have a lot to do with it. Mm. And, it actually is, it's not bullshit, Iron Story is a light in the dark yeah. for people. It's inspiring yeah. for people like her. And, um, and she felt much happier after hearing Iron Story. Um, and also, when I go to these places, I never leave depressed because you meet a lot of really young people who are organizing mm. and they're doing things in, in dangerous situations yeah. and they're not afraid, or if they are, they don't show it. Mm. Um, and they, I find that inspiring and re energizing and all of that. So, I, listen, I love living in Dublin. I think, in many ways, we, you know, we are pretty, we have done really well. And I'm really proud of the changes and all of that. Um, and I never have an issue and whatever. But um, I also, I'm just slightly aware because I am on the internet and because of who I am, I do, people come at me on the internet. I, my one little thing is there is a s- small but vocal hard um you know right wing i'm going to even basically you know nazi in some ways in many ways they're not organized enough to be nazis but apart from that <laughs> and, um racist oh, they're very it's a very small group but they are hardcore they are fired up they're stupid but aggressive they've uh, have done arson attacks on a number of uh proposed direct provision centers. They have whipped up animosity in places against uh, re- refugees and asylum seekers. They are organizing in a way that they never did before. And most people in arms don't even see it yet because they're not on the internet having this, these people come at them. Um, and when you bring it up, they kind of are dismissive, most Irish people because they don't really
0: yeah.
1: th- think that you're talking real sense. But you've started to see the things that they have actually achieved of uh, whipping up animosity in small towns around the country against asylum seekers and so on. Um, I'm a mayor person, the one in Actel recently really depressed me, and people online are coming at me, yeah, but well, there's no services for 13... Um, I agree that the direct vision s- uh, system is horrible. Uh, I think it'll be another magnet in Laundries when we look back on it later. I also agree that ACL is not the right place to be sending uh, asylum seekers from all different parts of the world with all sorts of histories because they'll feel isolated and all that. I love ACL. I mm. used to go there a lot. But my god, have you ever spent a winter in ACL? You need to be a very specific type of person. Um, so I agree with all of that. But that is not why people start protesting against the direct um, the provision center there. And the idea that they can't handle 13 women when they are, will open their arms to thousands of tourists every summer. Mm. Not a bother. Yeah. Thirteen women. Like, And that is not because the people of akal are somehow terrible. No, they're lovely, wonderful, ordinary people. But they have been used uh, by these people who are seeing this as their way into things.
0: Mm.
1: And uh, so that is a serious concern That that not and people don't see it as a serious concern yet. Most people, and that's a mistake. That's my only worry at the minute, um, because we've seen. Uh, we should learn from other countries' experiences, yeah. and we have the opportunity by being behind other countries on lots of things, um, to be able to sort of leapfrog over mm. some of the things. And I think that helped us in the marriage equality and the repeal uh, referendums. Yeah. Um, you know, we were able to leapfrog over some of the mistakes, and we are now allowing all the same mistakes. To happen here that happened in other countries before us. That's a, that's a really depressing note to end no, on. But no, no, we, we, we won't so end good. on that
0: note. <laughs> uh, Anna asked, you've got your lovely apartment here. If you were to wave a magic wand and live anywhere you wanted, in Ireland or wherever else, what would you like to have?
1: Oh, uh, God, it's going to sound really smug, but well, I can't. I'm very happy in this little apartment. That's okay. cool. Um, I have never been. I'm from the country, and the country's lovely for a minute. <laughs> I'm not that personality. I will never want to be having to think about how I'm getting into town. That's not going to be my thing. And here I'm right in the thick of it, but it's also very quiet. And mm. um, the seagulls are fucking annoying in the spring. <laughs> but apart from that, it's very quiet. Um, and I step outside and I'm on Abbey Street. And I'm an eight-minute walk to Panty Bar. Um, I'm such a gay city person. I don't even have a driver's license, which is annoying um, when I need one or whatever. But in general, my general life, I never even think about it. I occasionally have to get a taxi with a drag bag somewhere. That's it. Nice. I can walk nearly everywhere else. Um, but Yeah, everything. You've got it all. Don't, except for Ikea. I do have to get <laughs> public transport to
0: Ikea. Thanks very much to Rory O'Neill for letting us go back to yours. I'm Rosheen Ingle and remember to subscribe to Back to Yours wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends.